what you should be doing, and I know that I'm going to get my head extra bitten off for this. You want to be setting up a system like China's. China had, <laughs> not like, you want to be copying aspects of it, right? Like China had, because like, dude, honestly, you can say whatever you, I know everyone's just going to be like, human rights violations. And like every country on earth does human rights violations. What I'm talking about is the actual mechanism of government. What has happened there is remarkable. It is unparalleled in human history. They've lifted 700 million people out of poverty. You do not do that unless you have an extremely efficient form of government working. And so like, when you are talking about, uh, like, okay, this this is the okay, best can example I just jump, that I can, can give. I jump in? Can yeah. I jump in? Aren't there a lot of countries that have not, well, not identical, but similar forms of government to China that haven't seen the same increase in average standard of livings? Yes. See, this is the thing. This is what I'm talking about right here. Is that no, there aren't any other comparable countries on earth and anybody that says something like Vietnam, well, Vietnam has risen the standard of living amongst its citizens phenomenally from a country that was completely bombed for 30 years and had to start from scratch. It's it, That's another miracle in itself. But Vietnam is not comparable to China. What has happened in China is... Uh, cutting edge in terms of governing, in terms of like, and we're not talking, when we're talking about this, we're not talking about... Okay, let's, let's just say this. The system of governing there is an incredibly effective one in that, and this is the best example that I can give, fully knowing that everyone's just going to be like, but most people in the comments just, they don't actually have a good point. Sometimes they do. Most of the time, it's just like, you just don't know what you're talking about. But like they, the, the, the example no, that they were giving... Disenfranchise the audience too much there. <laughs> The example they were giving was uh, I was listening to this economist talking about their system. Sorry, political scientists talking about their system. And he was saying that he was talking to uh, one of his fellow associates in a Chinese university and saying that uh, where would Trump and Obama be in their system? Like, Neil, you know how you were just saying beforehand do you think that there can be another Trump in our system? And no, there can't be. It, our system does not allow for a Trump. It allows for a Trump being in the Senate. They can be there, but they'd mm. never be the prime minister. Mm. It's impossible for them to be the prime minister. It's too many different factors. Um, but like the same yeah. thing I was saying never say about never, that. But right now it's not. It's, it's, it's incredibly unlikely now. Yeah. As in for there to be a Trump revolutionary stuff would have to happen in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, with China, though, their economic system has evolved from from Mao because Deng Xiaoping was actually quite liberal, wasn't he? And then now Xi Jinping has has sort of taken a step back and a, a step towards a bit more authoritarianism and, and, and control of the economy. Or, look, I don't know if this is just Western media indoctrinating me. But um, they're communist in name only. They're not actually a communist country by any stretch of the imagination, economically. No, see, economically. exactly. This is the whole point. Like, if you really look at how the Chinese system works, if you're just going to make it very, very blunt, 
They allow the economy to do what it needs to do, but they have the government in control of it. So they, for instance, when it comes to something like renewable energy, 10 years ago, they said, go and invest in these things. And then companies went and did it. And obviously they put in incentives and rebates like you would here, but there was also just the decree that the government would say, you companies go do this. You, you make money in this field. There's guidance there. Now, um, okay. the, the example that I would give, and so, yeah, like when you're saying it's communist in name only, I suppose, look, these are all murky. I hate these terms, but look, when people yeah, are talking about yeah. communists, they're talking about the whole, you know, private property, private property doesn't exist. Uh, hmm. everybody's guaranteed a job. All of that stuff existed. It existed under Mao. It doesn't exist like that anymore. Like the, the, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it has the best aspects of a Western economy, but it's, it's like, it has something that our economy does not have, which is control. It's, it's obvious in things like lockdowns. The fact that China has so few cases for such a large country. That is the result of a very effective government working there. And what do you see when you go to New South Wales, where clearly corporations are in control? You have a weak, ineffective leader like Gladys Berejiklian, who does exactly what corporations wanted to do to a T, what corporations want. They want to stay open so that they can sell more shit. And so they just say, no, nah, you're staying open. She has to wait until the last minute until basically corporations say, yeah, okay, you can shut down on it. Another one is building regulation. You know what? This is scary, Neil. This freaked me the fuck out. I was talking to one of two's family members who's studying engineering here and she, civil engineering. And she was saying to me, I was talking about, uh, you know, 85% of apartments in Australia crumbling, new, new apartment builds. And I was saying to her, I, I can't imagine what it would be like in Vietnam. And she said, it's way better in Vietnam. Like the building codes in Vietnam are bit, way better, way better than they are here. She studied in both areas. Like she knows what she's talking about in Australia. She knows what she's talking about in Vietnam. She's done both. She is saying that like- Are you just like, seeing the good? Are huh? you sort of just, are you just, you've been able to see how- uh, 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 you know, and maybe a lack of government oversight in a country like Australia right now has uh, been to our disadvantage. And then you're and you're just sort of seeing how China is going right now, and and only looking at the good. I mean, do they have the ability to be as innovative um, and sort of push things like? cultural innovation and creativity when they have such a sort of authoritarian control over their populace. Well, see, this is the thing that's interesting about that is that China recognized, and this is what I'm talking about right here. Okay. In the West, we have had the freedom to think and do whatever we want. And so we do just come up with all of these nifty ideas and you look at the patents, it's European Union blitzes China, for instance, in terms of new inventions for now. But you look at the last five years, especially China skyrocketing in new patents. And the reason is, is because the government realized, oh, okay, creativity is important. We'll start teaching creativity at school. It just became a decree, it became standardized. They used to be constantly 
teaching maths, engineering, science, STEM products, like STEM subjects, because that's what a developing economy needs, heaps of that. But then they got to the realization of, okay, now we need to start developing the left side of the brain. And so they've implemented that and it's rearing results. It's again, the point of having a guided governing system mm. there. But the, the whole point of like what happens with China to like here, is it like, it's, it's just like, actually I'll just, I'll, I'll go to this cause it's actually well, such look, a, yeah. When you it's, have a guiding a, a guiding government government system that has the interests of the nation as its core values, that would ultimately pay dividends. I think when people say absolute power corrupts, right now the power that the CCP wield uh, is being used to better the conditions of the average person in China because they have the cultural ethos of we need to reclaim our rightful position as a significant global empire now once they achieve that goal and they no longer have that narrative or if they achieve that goal when that narrative ceases to exist because they've done what they needed to do what would a country that has afforded that much power to the government look like when they're out for themselves well, see, this is the thing that, like, it's just the, the paradigm is different. Like, again, as we're saying, never say never. But the difference in China, and this is something that you cannot deny, even its biggest detractors must think that this is a good idea. If you want a position of power in China, now everyone's going to point to, oh, there's massive corruption rates in China. Yeah, but it's a developing country. It doesn't matter what developing country you're looking at. There's going to be massive corruption in those countries because there's not enough resources. Like the difference of corruption that we're talking about when they say there's different corruption here, corruption here is an elite thing. Like it happens in the big chambers of power, but because police officers and nurses have enough money here, they're not going to prioritize care to someone who gives them an extra 10 bucks, but there they're going to, because they don't make enough to live like base public servants, right? Like that's what happens in a developing country, but they, the system that was set up there is okay. If you want, if, if you want to become a premier of China, you have to be extremely smart from the beginning. No one can just run for any position there. Like you have to pass tests. You have to have a basic level of acumen. So somebody like John Barilaro, for instance, disqualified outright, too stupid for the job. There is no, in no universe would John Barilaro be the deputy premier of any Chinese province. It wouldn't happen. It's just, there's, there's a system set up there to weed out idiots. That's like a big, big thing that would happen. Right. But like, the other thing is that they force in experience. So, okay, you want to be the premier of a province there. You start out as your block mm. representative. So that's just somebody that like for your block, you go to them and you say the garbage isn't getting collected. And so they have to deal with that. Then when they've dealt with that long enough, it's just like, okay, you become your suburb representative. And then when you've become good enough at that, you become your district representative you know like you, you have to right, move so up the scale like you have to pass tests and act and show acumen the whole time like for the point is like jinping 
for him to get to his mm. position. So in many ways, says, it's it's very, in many ways, it's quite meritocratic. Yeah, because a democracy like may not be meritocratic. A democracy can be this person is charismatic, this person has social power, has social influence, but do they have the aptitude for governance? Whereas China says, let's put you through this rigorous process where you prove that you have the aptitude for governance and that's how you earn your position. I mean, I think yeah. they do have their, their you know, their ele- elections in quote-unquote <laughs> don't know how free those elections are. But. Oh, yeah, the, the elections are a complete sham. But this is the whole thing that I'm talking about, which is that, like, so rouse. Like, you know, I, I think we have been conditioned so much in Western society, and it's something that I'm going into in my stand-up show, like, from Roman times, what has the elite constantly been pushing? Liberty and freedom. Th- those are the catch cries all throughout democratic history but why are they constantly pushing that idea that's the thing because i don't think that it actually leads to a better society this idea that you know liberty and freedom is sacrosanct there are other things that are much more important like for instance quality of life you know or competence like i i really do i love that about asian countries whether it be china korea singapore japan there is this ethos in those countries of like, we don't really care about freedom. We care about competence. That's at the top of their list there. Are you good at your job? Don't you think that that's such a better thing to strive towards? Where is the conflict between freedom and competence? Because uh, a society that is, that values something like freedom. I mean, there is, there are heterogeneous, views even in in the liberal side of the equation of their conception of that of freedom you know what is the actual role of government but at what point does western society say freedom above competence at what point do those two values conflict where where well, it's just did they come into conflict it's obvious in our system don't you think that like okay barnaby joyce i remember him saying at a private party to someone that i was talking to once he said that's what i love about this country someone like me can be deputy prime minister to me that is the worst thing about this country that someone like him can be deputy prime minister no qualifications no interest in government they just plop him into this position of power into a seat like you know even if you're a backbencher the fact that you are in the chambers of power of 150 other people, like a very, very select group of people that are sitting there in the chambers of power making decisions day after day. And what's your job before that? Uh, I was a butcher. I was a footy coach. I was a real estate agent. That is so moronic to me. Whereas like in well, in a system like China, it's just butchers like... Butchers out huh? there. <laughs> and what? Uh, there's some good butchers. You know, just I don't think... They're legends. one of those jobs necessarily disqualifies you. But I, I know what you mean. Do you think that's No, no, no they're, they're good people, right? Like, but it's just like the whole thing of like... Think... But dude, yeah, like, just no, I know d- what think mean. about it like this, right? Like if okay. you were a butcher, you're not going to be a lawyer. Like that's just disqualified. Why yeah. is it now, that you get to be a politician? Like making huge decisions about allocating like budgets, education systems. Like you get all of those decisions. It's like, dude, I study... Politics for a living. I do not think that I should be in parliament. I don't think that I'm smart enough for it. I don't think that I'm qualified enough for it. 
in no universe should I be in that chamber, let alone, you know, John Barilaro, you know? Yeah, they're at the peak of their Dunning-Kruger curve. Um, Do you think this level of idiocy in our (laughs) government is, is a product of a flawed system or is it a product of a society that has been uh, successful for so long and living standards have been comfortable for such a long period of time that the average voter has become, well, ostensibly lazy. There is, when it, when it comes to freedom, there's also an immense amount of responsibility that comes with that freedom. And we've all collectively failed to live up to that responsibility in not adequately researching who we're voting for and uh, putting these sorts of people in positions of power. Uh, Really, is it the fault of the society and the system or is it the fault of us, the voters? Look, as I'm always saying, yes, individually it's your fault, but the system allows for that to happen. Like, again, in China, there is no way that you are afforded the opportunity for someone like that to be in that position. So, like, it's, it is just a, a fault of this system. And in fact, that's what naturally happened to the Roman Republic. People always say, oh, isn't it bad that it turned into a military dictatorship? Well, it couldn't have turned into anything else. There is no way that you could have a republic running in the way that it was. There was a hundred years there where there was a faction of the Senate, the Populare, that were trying to reform uh, the republic to make it work in a way that was at least efficient, at least made sense of itself. But, you know, you can't run an empire and have a system that is constantly eating itself and, like, just self-focused on self-gain. That had to be done away with. And that's when, like, eventually, like, it just resulted in a bunch of civil wars. And at the end of that, you had... Uh, an emperor, and that system proved a lot better, like a lot more sturdy. It it was able to withhold mm. a, a lot more strain. So it's the same thing. Well, I it's think just we like, can, yeah, we can both agree that there are some advantages to that particular part of the Chinese uh, governmental system and its process in choosing the uh, leaders. That's not to say that it's necessarily an endorsement of the entire Chinese system. Um, so I don't think, you know, if people are going to comment about that, that sounds very reasonable to me that you you, you, know, you have to work your way up to uh, national government by showing how competent you are uh, at, at smaller levels of government. But coming back to a point I made a few minutes ago, what do you think about the idea of, I suppose, a national narrative or, or a sort of a national consciousness that every citizen, whether they're indoctrinated to into or not, but every citizen shares. And that compels the entire country to achieve great things, not entirely regardless of the system, but there have been examples throughout history where different political and governmental systems have proven to be successful. And 
there's just been an ambitious collective consciousness within the society and the West now has been on top for so long and some would say our culture has become degenerate and we're focused with, there's always been um, the proclamation of, of freedom and, and liberty, but there was a responsibility that came with that. Uh, even in something like a national, like the, the, the just compulsory national service in the army uh, that definitely doesn't occur any anymore, but there was this sort of duty to the country that, um, you'd be hard-pressed to find among a lot of Australia's youth uh, because they fundamentally might not even believe in the ideals of the country. So do you think there's anything to be said about actually forming some for some kind of national uniform consciousness that can actually propel us towards a vision of making Australia great and improving Australia and having everyone's individual civic duty to be part of that. And that would then improve the level of acumen within government because people would be much more well-versed in their civic responsibility and really look into who's running government. And, 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 and you know, it wouldn't just be the the playground for, uh, what do they say? It's, it's Hollywood for ugly people. No, it would be people who sincerely want to improve the country. I mean, in the, I guess, post-Federation days of Australia in the early 1900s, would someone like a Barnaby Joyce or a John Barillaro be able to achieve government? I'm assuming not, although I don't, I'm not well-versed in the culture of Australia at that time. But, uh, how much is this a product of, of the culture we're finding ourselves in rather than just specifically the system? Look, I'll say that the system makes it so that it's fail safe and like, or, or at least like urge you towards a, a way of doing things. And you're right in a time where there would have been a war or a depression, the country would have come together and put aside their petty differences because there was something much, much bigger at stake. That's true. And in fact, you are seeing a micro version of that with COVID, which is just such a pathetic version of our generation's depression. That's what's happening now. Um, but even then, it's not. there's still a lot of disunity and, and tribalism, a lot of people who don't trust the media and are sceptical of the... Uh, the laws that are uh, potentially being enacted. Uh, you know, there's a lot of debate about vaccine mandates and we don't, if we don't necessarily trust the government, how can we have full confidence in the decisions that they're making? So yeah. it, I wouldn't say that COVID has really brought <laughs> the country together. I mean, we've now had this one shared experience, maybe in 10 years time that will sort of, help in, in, in terms of a, a unification of the populace. Uh, but I don't think it's anything like the depression or the world wars. No, it's, that's what I'm saying, right? Like it's, it's a small taste of it. There's elements of it where you see society coming together as in, yes, there'll be protests against 
uh, COVID, but they are a small minority in comparison to the people that are complying with what the government says. Like you walk outside, you see everyone wearing a mask. It's, it's a small example of it, of just making sacrifices because generally people are moving along towards it. It's nothing like the depression on the war, nothing at all. Well, uh, uh, sorry, it's slightly like the depression or the war, slightly. Um, but, you know, actually this is interesting because I was just talking to my lawyer the other day about this. Uh, it was expanding on this idea that I had that I really do think that the 70s seems like it would have been a great time to be alive in Australia. And this is just from talking to my parents and how they'd say that they kind of just drove around in a combi, visited Australia. They didn't have that much money, but you could move your dole check from post office to post office. No one cared. It was kind of a thing of like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You want to just be on the dole, that's fine. Uh, just interesting hippie stuff was happening. There was a bunch of... Well, hang on. Is that a good thing that, you you, you know, there was a culture of acceptance? Because you've just said that there's a... There's a culture in Asian countries that you appreciate, but that sounds completely at odds with what you just described, which is yeah, sort of turning the other cheek to people who were um, uh, traveling around Australia in a van collecting doll checks. I don't think they look <laughs> as fondly on that in, in Asia. Well, that's the whole thing. They don't have the resources. In Australia, we do have the resources for that, definitely. Like in, in a country like uh, Vietnam, no, but that's... You know, if you've been ravished from 30 years of total war, no, it's it's pretty selfish to have people driving around in a combi looking at oceans and smoking doobs. But I'm just saying, like, it's it's not so much, like, I'm just saying it's it's not that it's a, I don't think it's a good thing for society for you to be doing that, but I'm saying that it's an interesting time to be alive for you individually, that you could kind of just do whatever you want. And I was talking to my lawyer who obviously he was alive in the seventies and he did something with his life. He wasn't like my parents had just bummed around. He did something, but he was saying that the reason that that existed in the seventies, that you could kind of just do whatever you wanted. And it was just this kind of like groovy hippie fest thing was because there was this understanding when Gough Whitlam came in, that that was the end of the class system, that it was truly a meritocracy at this point, that there was, enough money in government services that if you wanted to be an environmental scientist, go be one. You wanted to work in the post office, that's fine. Uh, you know, you, you wanted to become an engineer, there you go, university's free. Like, hmm. if, if you're talking about a truly free society, that is the closest that Australia ever became. Whitlam in the 70s, he, he pumped uh, government agencies with enough money that you could go and do these things. Like these opportunities were afforded to anyone. If you wanted to make movies, okay. this is the other thing that was insane. If you wanted to make movies in the seventies, like it's just such a bizarre thought now, but there was a time in the seventies that if you wanted to work in radio, you wanted to work in television journalism, uh, those glamor jobs that are really now just reserved for the absolute elite of society there. Uh, apart from us, Neil, like it's just the internet that allowed us to ghettoize this. But before that, as we were saying, it was just that. But there was a point in the 70s where you could be anyone and you could go 
And there would be enough jobs in these that you could put your foot in the door and you could work your way up, which is such a, because like, I remember talking to people that grew up in that world and they were just like, why okay. don't you just go to the ABC and work? And you just can't, that doesn't exist now. Like all of those things have been yeah, taken I, out. I mean, well, first of all, let me play conservative devil's advocate here. And if you're fostering a society where people are able to ride around in combi vans collecting dole checks, well, those dole checks are paid for by other people who are working. So there is a sense of responsibility there. Now, I'm not necessarily arguing against that sort of society, but I'm just sort of bringing up points that I know um, would be usually used against that. Uh, Surely that does seem like a bit of it. Maybe it's because I've grown up in a, in a different society, but that seems like a bit of a sort of naive utopia for me. That surely couldn't last forever where um, anyone can just do whatever they want and every industry was booming and um, a large portion of the population can just be hippies and, and we can financially support that. That seems like a bit of a, well, you know, 70s type dream, a boomer dream. Um, and if anything, our generation is actually paying the costs of that. But again, I don't know if this is some kind of, you know, conservative talking point that I've been indoctrinated with. Uh, it, it just seems to me like that's not the sort of, that doesn't seem like a kind of culture where we're putting the interests of the nation first. Uh, we're putting the interests of the self first and, and that's great. But there will be a point where that then conflicts with the interests of the nation. I mean, this is this that sounds like I just said, that sounds very different to what China is. Yeah. But see, this is what I'm saying, right? Like the idea, this is what I'm getting back to with that concept of freedom. It's so amorphous. What freedom? Like to me, that 70s society in Australia is free. You want to be on the dole, you can be on the dole. You want to work in uh, biology, you can go and work in biology. You want to be a teacher, go be a teacher. That's a free society. Mm. Our society is not like that. As he was saying, he was looking at a bunch of people from the West, because he's always he's in criminal law, so he does a lot of drug stuff with Western suburbs people, and he just thought, like, he had this realisation of, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck the avenues are for you in the Western suburbs. What is there? You can become a tradie, sure. What else is there? Tradie, drug dealer. And he, he noticed something in the Western suburbs. He was saying that everyone that he met that was a drug dealer from the Western suburbs, he doesn't deal with the real lib gangs and bikies. He doesn't deal with those people that murder people over drugs. He's just like, fuck you, I'm not defending you. He's talking about... People that just try and get one import of Coke from Brazil, try and divvy it out, then they're out and they get caught. Those kind of people. Hang but on. He was why thinking, can't they? Why can't people? Why can't people from the western suburbs? You know, in Sydney we have the the selective school system, which is a, something I came through, which are they're public schools, but you uh, just have to show an aptitude for academia at a young age, and then you get to be a part of these schools and you could easily then get into a pretty uh, prestigious university and um, through 
hex if if you can't necessarily afford it up front you can still do a a fancy course like medicine or or, or law do you, do you, do you really think there's just no opportunity? i'm not saying it's easier i'm not saying it's equal but i don't know if i believe that there are no avenues for people from the west no i think that's is, a bit extreme you're correct in that but this is the thing that was interesting about the 70s, which is, and it kind of goes back to the dark ages, I suppose, but it was more a spiritual realm, I suppose, where there was this idea that like, you can only do what is in your consciousness. So for instance, with you, this is not taking it away from you because I know you as a person I know that you're an extremely enterprising, naturally enterprising, naturally intelligent, naturally hardworking person. Doesn't take it away from you. But as we've stated before in a previous video, uh, you grew up with Indian parents that instilled in you education's important. And as I said before, in the Western suburbs, a lot of people grow up where the family is not saying that education's important. Their school's a shithouse because they've just been defunded so much that they're crap. Like, I know teachers now that go to Western suburbs schools like Liverpool or something, and it's basically a prison. No one's paying attention. No one's trying to learn. Everybody's throwing chairs at yeah. each other and shit. It's carnage. And it's I remember that my mum, when she was a teacher, she was saying that Liverpool wasn't like that. And that was a result of Gough Whitlam's education system of just putting good teachers in bad suburbs. So they at least had that consciousness in their mind that you can go and do other things. So it's that idea that like education's key. It really is. It truly, truly is. And so if you are in the Western suburbs, you are essentially trained because this is another thing that the liberals have done over the years. They've just been like, ah, I don't give a fuck. Okay. I need somebody to install my fucking bench tables because I don't, I, I don't want to do that. Oh, right, we'll, we'll teach the fucking Westies to do that. They can, they can go and work and being plumbers and carpenters and all that kind of crap. Um, you know, you don't need university for that. Why do they need good schools? They can just go to TAFE. There's, there's obviously sort of an understanding that that's happening. Whereas all of these people that he's saying, he sees, enterprising he thinks this all the time when he sees these drug dealers and the, the 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 mechanisms that they've come up with it's very anybody would know this if they've watched the wire right like when you watch the wire a great part mm. of that show is the reflection of the the black guy drug dealers and then just like you know comparing it to politics or you know the media or something like that and showing that it's actually a fairly similar political system and hierarchy that's happening there and the ways that they get drugs from place to place owner. is genius yeah yeah and yeah. out of necessity you, well, like you, it's you're forced you're forced to be creative because so many um restrictions are put on you yeah so you have to get around those restrictions by being creative you have to be uh socially adept uh and you have to be cunning you have to be smart look there's a lot of skills that are involved in being a high-level drug dealer. Yeah. Just whether or not we believe it's moral is a different story, but the people who uh, participate in it and are successful at it 
it's no different to any other field. The people who rise up in that field would show uh, certain aptitudes and skills uh, that if put into a different, if sort of utilized in a different area of life, I'm sure they would have been just as proficient. So look, there's there's a point to be made there about um, social mobility and there needs to be some level of government redistribution uh, to ensure an adequate level of social mobility. I guess the, the obvious conflict with that is in um, undertaking that social mobility, you are more often than not uh, using uh, taxation, which is coming from people who uh, may have actually, you know, they've, they've earned that money. Um, so there's always that tension there, I suppose. But, um, you know, that's the age-old question. How much do you redistribute? Well, yeah, that, that's, that's like another question. Like, it's just the, the broad concept of why isn't the opportunity to just travel around Australia if that's what you want to do and not work? That, to me, that is an indicator of a truly free society, right? And so, like, I think that the idea that... Uh, well, again, like, I have to come back by saying, you know, someone is paying for that travel, if they're on the dole, so someone, so it's, you know, you're taking away someone else's, you're taking away a small percentage of someone else's freedom in order for for those people to have their freedom. But see, this is the thing. Don't you think that if you're in a society like ours, you're actually quite regimented. There's a lot of things at play that are happening that kind of force you into the job that you have. Now, uh, both of us, are fortunate in the sense that uh, we, we were educated enough to try and put our creative endeavors into something that's a little more productive than dealing drugs. But if you are in that strata of society and you're creative, you will first of all probably be attracted to drugs because it makes you think differently. But the second thing is you, you naturally move into that because there's just nothing else going on in your realm at all that is anything remotely creative. And so in a lot of ways, like this idea that no, the government shouldn't do anything. Uh, you have to make it on your own. Like, these are all just excuses for wealth distribution going to the top anyway. But let's just no, take I, it on I mean, its merit for a second. Like if that was the case, you are creating a society where you kind of have a destiny built out for you, depending on what strata of society you're in. Counter example, sure, but most people will be slotted very nicely into where they're supposed to go because of mm. like the area that they grew up, right? And so, it, and like, so that's yeah. that's what I'm talking about in terms of like the, the difference of freedom. Like, you you really are just conditioning people to go down a certain path. That's to me the exact opposite of a free society. Sure, there are definitely different conceptions of freedom there. I do, I do think the example of two people in a van uh, traveling around Australia versus 
someone who grows up in a lower socioeconomic area who is unable to uh, achieve their potential because of their circumstances. I think those are two very, you know, they're, they're pretty different examples there. Uh, but I do see what you mean. But don't you um, think, like, I, I know what you're I saying, think- that, like, yeah, they're different examples, but it's like they actually are a really good ex- – it's kind of like a nice indicator of the waste of those different societies. So, like, okay, the society where you are giving people access to whatever education they want and enough money to live, in that society the waste product is bums, just bumming around. But the waste yeah. product of the other society is people that could be biologists, people that could be teachers, people that could be ecologists dealing drugs. Mm. That's what I think. It's just like it, both societies are going to have a waste. But I think it might be okay. better that like okay. losers are kind of staying out of trouble because losers would probably just be doing fucked things anyway. They'd probably be stealing and like lads, lads, for instance, I reckon like yeah. the amount of lads that would be reduced in that 70s society would be a lot lower. Right. Yeah. It's just like, there's always going to be f- fucked people. There's always going to be fucked people, but it's just about like, well, that's the, so- yeah, like, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a strong sociological argument that says culture is actually bred out of economic conditions. So, uh, you know, we, you can make the argument that, which I've often have, uh, that, well, it's not the economic conditions that cause people to choose a life of crime and, and drug dealing. It's, it's the culture. Uh, but rightfully that's, uh, sort of, uh, I wouldn't say debunked necessarily, but a strong argument against that is, well, when you grow up in abject poverty, you're more likely to adopt uh, that sort of a culture. Now, it's again, nature versus nurture. There's a combination of both. It's interesting. Look, I'm not necessarily in favor of this worldview. I'm not in favor of it at all, but it is interesting to grapple with the steel man version of the conservative vision, which in my best estimation is there is very limited government and um, economic regulation. So people are in theory free to economically oppress others and hoard money and be greedy but where that differentiates, at least in my opinion, to something like libertarianism is it has a grounding cultural ethos, and that is Christianity. And what does the culture of Christianity teach? It teaches to be generous, to uh, care for the poorest people in, in, in the community, to um, have those community ties in the local church and to not live a life of luxury. So in an ideal society when you actually, if, if culture is that moral and people actually enact those values, it in many ways reduces the need for certain government programs. Now, in reality, that doesn't necessarily work. Uh, humans are a lot more complex than that. And as much as you can try to indoctrinate people to be perfect christian moral citizens they're never going to be you know there's always going to be a certain portion that doesn't act that way and uh, in many ways that lifestyle may actually be more appealing but 
that vision is is very interesting to me because in many ways that could actually be the ideal society if people were truly moral as individuals then even if they had the freedom to become hedonistic billionaires that just want to hoard as much money as they can they wouldn't do that because they have and a, a grounding moral framework that says, okay, you get to a certain amount of money and then even though you have the freedom to keep earning more of that money, no, you give some of that away. You are mm. charitable or you're mm. philanthropic. Um, mm. What do you think about that? Because I find that you know quite a compelling argument in many, in many ways. Like I said, I don't think that's sort of pragmatic with the sort of technology and, and society we have today. So I'd never sort of... Uh, I, I like playing devil's advocate with that argument and and sort of um, you know posturing with it in a discussion like this. Uh, but what what do you think about that worldview, dude? It's like undeniable. As in, as we've said before in this podcast, Christians give way more money to charity than atheists. Um, it's the same in the Islamic world. Uh, I. I you can't not argue because you know what it's instilled. This is another ex- example. The Taliban, for instance, the Taliban, the West is always focusing on the, I don't know, stoning a woman for not wearing a headscarf aspect of it. But another aspect of it is they also stone wealthy landowners that have enslaved a bunch of people. And they say like, okay, well, you guys just have a, a lot this land up to yourselves because in all religious doctrine is a sense of fairness that is sort of drilled into you. And it makes you, I I do, I do truly think this, that fairness, the fact that it's there makes you a better person in general. There's no denying that at all. I, I, I do think that that's like, look, the worst, most evil thing that you can have is the society that we have now which is one that is just completely based off materialism, uh, completely based off of money. It's just that. It's, it's, it's the core thing of that, like money just being all of your worth. But the whole thing about all religious doctrines is that they're trying to constantly instill into you, you know, th- there's more to life than what you own. Th- they, that mm. is a really, really important thing and like also just again you go back to the roman empire example the fact that the bishop could reason with you know huge scary hordes of barbarians that would just slit someone's throat in the blink of an eye and say to them god doesn't want you to rape and enslave these people and they'd say oh okay and they'd move on to the next it says a lot it says a lot. Mm. It really so says th- a lot. You're I, I, definitely a, right. There's a sort of quite a prominent um, philosophical uh, view that, you know, that the actions of a nation state or a society really starts with the individual. So if we can foster a culture that instills the values that we idealize for the collective within the individual that in many ways actually um, can replace some of the necessity for 
government programs, I would never sort of necessarily practically enact this, but as an ideal to aim for, I think that's worth striving for. And what we have now, as much as we have uh, economic trends that are clearly uh, disconcerting to you, I think we have a very divided tribal culture and we can't even agree on basic premises of reality. There are certain sectors of the progressive left that have one view of what is racism and then there are other people who have the more individualistic view of what racism is and and when we're uh, discussing it as a major tenet of morality in our society and we can't even agree on the very definition, I mean, that's symptomatic of a much larger problem, which is that we don't have a unifying cultural code. Now, mm. Mm. we Australia did. I was not around that time, but multiculturalism, I think, is, is, is great as a sort of reaction to the pretty uh, overt racism of the past. But moving forward, in theory, multiculturalism would would have clear problems. Now, if we're talking about something like multiculturalism in terms of people have different food and and music and and dances, but on terms of in terms of actual ethics and ideas about patriotism, that is common throughout an entire population. Well, that's fine, but. Look, that's not necessarily what it is. If the idea of being Australian, Australian is simply that, oh, we're a country of all sorts of diverse people, well, then you don't have a unified cultural country even. You have a, the, the only unifying factor is basically the tax code and, this, and the economic system, but... I think we actually need to move forward into a, a, a sort of national narrative that appeals to everyone in um, Australia throughout the 21st century. And that's going to take some time because there's a lot of division there. But we have to try and avoid getting to the point that America is right now. Uh, although we tend to follow their their lead, especially on issues of culture. But uh, unless we can actually have a sort of grounding framework, a unifying cultural and, and even moral code, well, we can't then actually discern what the ideal system is. We have to have basic moral, basic common moral truths before we can do that. Now, I don't, think we just need to be reactionaries and say, well, you know, it was Christianity before. Let's, let's simply go back to that. Uh, the world is dramatically different. It's going to be changing at a very rapid pace. And we can see it as an opportunity. This is an opportunity to uh, develop new philosophies, new cultural ideas, new ideas about morality. I mean, it's, it's already emerging and things like, you know, animal welfare, veganism, things like that. But those sorts of atomized, well, right now it's atomized, those, you know, small, I wouldn't even say niche anymore, but those small cultures are still 
each in their own, you know, minority group. Uh, but there, there needs to be some sort of unifying cultural code. Uh, and multiculturalism can exist. I know this is weird coming from a brown guy because multiculturalism, I think for a lot of people is just synonymous with, well, we're not racist. Well, yeah, yeah, obviously, but let's move on from that. Like, of course, there are some racists out there and that's bad, but multiculturalism as a response to that is not, it's just too simplistic, you know, and it just, it poses too many cultural problems for me. I've been thinking about this a lot for the last week or two where it's a great sentiment, okay, but there has to be some kind of unifying national vision that we're all on the same page about. And coming back to, to China, every citizen there, I'm guessing, has that same notion of we are going to rise up to where, to you know, to our um, proper uh, position as a major global empire. And we're going to make amends for our century of humiliation. And they, and they have that deep cultural ethos embedded in, into their entire into their livelihood and that would influence the way they act and whether they think they're deserving of a governmental position. Uh, so everything starts with, with culture. Uh, and I think in discussing whatever economic system may be appropriate for Australia moving forward, we also have to have that conversation. But like, what do you think, I don't know. I'm I'm really at a loss with why Australia doesn't have a sort of guiding ethos anymore. I'm sure multiculturalism had a big say in it, but I, yeah, and like again, I'm going to say everything else as well. I think that it's also just the fact that Western society is so driven by money and shallow things that there's nothing, there's no why. There's no fucking why to, Mm. that's what you're really talking about there, right? Like, it's like, what's the why? Absolutely. What's the point of this society? What is it? Is it just to fucking go to Coles and like buy shit? Because like that, to me, it really seems like that's what they're kind of aiming at. Don't you reckon it's just like no it is it's 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 just like live as comfortably as you can and um and then and and travel and get a great house and and then now there are still some uh deeper ideas of meaning beyond the self a lot of people still really value the family and you know having children I could only imagine is a is a is a uh you know that's it, that's a, a very uh fulfilling and um beyond the self view of what's important. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're right. A lot of the, it comes back to a podcast we did about Australian culture a while ago, and it came across for a lot of people as, um, well, facetious. And uh, I don't know if people directly got offended by it, but, you know, it seemed like we, we're treating Australian culture with levity, but I, I really don't know how some of the sort of mantras of the past will resonate with the, the Australia of the future. Things as simple as like having a fair go. I mean, these are just such 
simplistic, nebulous idioms that can be weaponized by political parties to virtually mean anything. Um, you know, there always has been sort of the, the idea of Australia, I think, has sort of been steeped in that sort of working man's paradise. I think that particular description has uh, influenced a lot of the, the policy and, and that's a big distinction from Australia to, say, America, where America is all about, you know, this is the land of opportunity. This is a land where you can become anything you want to be versus Australia, which is the working man's paradise. I mean, even just embedded in, in, in that is, I suppose, a call for, for uh, more social democracy as opposed to America where it's, you know, uh, the land of opportunity. That's a call to liberty. Um, now, they're both Western countries, but there's there's obviously a very clear distinction there. Um, I think we need a new, you know, we need, first of all, probably need an Australian Bill of Rights. <laughs> and then, you know, we need our uh, 21st century revamped version of Australian values. Well, you know what? Now that you're saying that, I'm starting to agree that it might just be uh, multiculturalism that's fucked it. Because when when you... Like, okay, for instance, you know what? Yeah, you're right. Okay, fair go, for instance. That existed because when Australia was being settled, it was mostly uh, tradies realizing I can make it big, like tradesmen, people like carpenters and plumbers and that kind of stuff. They moved from the British mm. empire to here. And so the idea of, it's actually something that someone once said to me, for instance, that like, if you really think about it, labor's values are so Aussie. There's such Aussie values, fair go. In many ways um, they are. Yeah. Yeah, like th 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 that kind of stuff is like just steeped naturally in Australia. And it's because uh, mm. there wasn't that gentry that existed in Europe. And so like it really actually was mm. the true land of opportunity where it came to America. Uh, it was mostly settled by uh, pilgrims that, again, wanted freedom of religion. So that kind of just transferred into this like, you know, idea of freedom that they had. And that's why that existed. I suppose they still do, even though they are an extremely multicultural society, though, they, they definitely have more of an identity than we have. They definitely do yeah, have like a, 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 do. a kind of like national ethos more than we do. Well, it just seems, look, for someone who's in, in his 20s and has grown up in in Australia, it just seems a lot of the sort of idioms that are espoused as Australian values are half jokes, you know, like, oh, yeah, we love, um, you know, we love to love to have a drink. Well, fuck, okay, cool. But, like, what? there's no call to arms or action. Uh, I mean, we, we help our mates. Okay, that's great. That's the sort of call to, to kinship and community, but... There's plenty of countries that help their friends. I mean, this is, again, this is things that I touched on in the previous podcast about Australian culture. Well, I think I guess I do understand a bit more about the folklore surrounding Ned Kelly is that he is a symbol of 
anti-authoritarianism in many ways. He was the original sitcun. Mm. You know, there were these yeah, sort of like... Uh, that's that's actually a yeah, really like, Aussie hero, isn't it? Yeah, because there were these restrictive laws and he said, nah, fuck off. And I'm going to wear my metal hat and shoot you cunts. Like, it's, it's actually... I, didn't, I never understood it, but I think... I, I should read more about him, to be fair, but that, that's my interpretation of it. He was the original yeah. sitcom. Um, yeah. Chopper again, Reed I'm is not another actually, one. I'm not, yeah, I'm not being facetious here because I, I really think that's just actually a very ingrained uh, ideal in Australia. Like a sitcom is just someone who, who when they're faced with... Uh, corrupt authority they say fuck off and that's actually deeply that's in many ways it's deeply important because if there is a culture of sitcoms of people saying fuck off to uh restrictive authority well then it's a lot harder for corruption to take hold in theory in theory uh well you know what that is something that is naturally australian isn't it Uh, well you know what i remember saying this as as a joke years ago on my youtube channel like when i was fresh out of uni but i do think Mm. that that is something that actually is uniquely australian is our love of peace taking it's honestly why the simpsons did so much better here than it did in virtually every other country including the united states it just isn't as a phenomenon as it was here and it's because it's like the Simpsons was just constant peace taking. It was constant uh, questioning of authority. And that just naturally resonates mm. with Australia. So that actually is something that we do have. It's kind of like, dude, actually, now that I think about it, there is definitely elements of an Australian identity that don't exist in other countries. Like, uh, uh, yeah, easygoing. I swear that's it, dude. Like easygoing and larrikinism. The, 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 even when you're talking about, uh, yeah. Okay. Say say like the the culture wars with like social justice warriors. Yeah. Yeah. Like when you're looking at that in the U S don't you think that their way of uh, dealing with that was just so much more like, violent and extreme than it was in Australia, where it was kind of just like the press kind of was just like, that's racist for a while. And everyone was just like, shut up and just moved on. Uh, yes and no, because I think we, we, we're just a few years, if not decades behind America. And so the intensity of, of their cultural division may uh, visit our shores uh but in 10 to 20 years time i think also the the uh the level of inequality uh in somewhere like america probably exacerbates the cultural division uh whereas here uh even though you've you've very clearly outlined how society uh, australia may be trending towards a more economically unequal society it's still nowhere near the level of america mm. uh and yeah, culture and economics, you know, they don't each exist in a void. Uh, they're very interconnected. But yeah, I think it's a, it, I think there is an opportunity for, a, you know, a new Australian identity. 
I think we're sort of seeing the limits of multiculturalism. Because, I mean, again, what does that... It, it's just very... It's essentially like a call to not be racist, which is great. It's very noble, but I really think it's just like a reaction to what happened before the 60s. And there's still a lot of... Yeah, I know, look, there's still a lot of problems, and you always got to make that point. Uh, but... Yeah, okay, we know to respect different cultures, but even then, multiculturalism can so easily become cultural relativism, and some cultures are just so clearly better than other cultures. And Dude. and at what point does multiculturalism then come into conflict with uh, freedom of expression and open inquiry and, and just open discourse? Because if you have the mantra of we need to respect different cultures, well, what does that respect look like? Does that respect look like never questioning them, never critiquing them? Because that's not something I can get behind. But, or does multiculturalism just mean like, okay, no, you can still have open inquiry and, and discussion, but uh, we don't, I suppose we don't sort of incessantly mock other cultures or just think that we're better than other cultures, but it's, it doesn't, to me, the conception of it is the former. And that clearly has its limits. But uh, look, we, we, we said really early on in this podcast, we've, we'll probably split this into two. So uh, in, in part one, I mentioned that we were going to answer a question. Um, we're going to have to get to that soon. But, but Jordan, do you, do you have any concluding remarks on what we've been talking about? Okay. I do think that in a new version of Australia, there is some like building blocks now that we've been talking about it more that you can uh, start from. And I think that uh, two of those that are tantamount is peace taking and equality isn't the right word. Fairness, like just this, like, I think there's this kind of like, I think equality okay. is kind of like imposed, is an imposed thing of like, uh, you know, everyone gets this equal portion. I don't think that that's what happens in Australia. I think it's just kind of like there's more this attitude of like, nah, that person's getting too much. And I think that that comes back to the piss-taking thing of just like, you're not that fucking special. Like, you don't deserve that fucking much, you know? I think that that actually is something that's like uniquely Australian. And I think that you're right. I think multiculturalism... Uh, definitely screwed around with that and i think that also something that happened with multiculturalism is there, there you know there, there's something in australia that i think maybe very few other countries have which is just this feeling of national shame and it's like why australia's mad mm. like it's one of the best countries on earth well, for what the is history this thing of huh for the for the the history, the colonial past, um, there's a, there's a huge feeling of of guilt and, and and shame, and that in many ways could be holding the country back. And look, for a lot of immigrants, we don't share that shame and guilt. I don't I don't have any white guilt. I I, I, I have empathy for um, uh, you know, the indigenous population, but at the same time, I'm not going to sort of let that empathy cloud something like fairness. Um, so it, it's like we're trying to atone. Our culture right now is like, all right, let's atone for the sins of the past. But what 
where multiculturalism has that call to moral action in, hey, don't be racist and, and, and sort of be tolerant and empathetic, that's limited in its scope and complexity. I mean, okay, we can all be not racist, but then still go and make millions and millions of dollars. And what do we do with that? How do we act as virtuous citizens in our day-to-day life other than just not being racist? Um, in many ways, that call to social justice almost replaced religion. You could you could make that argument. Um, and there are pitfalls to both, don't get me wrong, uh, but I think we are sort of at a, at a point now, especially for people like me who think a bit deeply about these sorts of issues, where, uh, you know, just modern ideas of just social justice or be tolerant and, and be empathetic and be kind and be respectful have their limits. And mm. I guess it doesn't, it doesn't um, morally uh, excite me. <laughs> I agree yeah. with those uh, general sentiments, uh, but I can also see where they can go too far. Uh, and I think we need a much more uh, complex and, and, and deeper idea of how to act in the world and how to act virtuously in the world. And I think you see that in you know our favorite our favorite topic. You, you see that in the rise of someone like a Jordan Peterson, who uh, is uh, espousing uh, more of a deeper uh, moral code for young men to uh, live by. That's really his appeal, isn't it? it well, for everyone. That, that's. Yeah, look, he's he's kind of just gotten the base element of Christianity there, which is kind of uh, like have something guiding you, you know, something. Mm. It's 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 an important mm. thing. Hang on, before we answer this question, I really need to go to the toilet. But I'll be right. <laughs> okay, well, you know what? We'll keep it we'll keep it rolling um, while Jordan's taking a piss. So I'll read out this question. Uh, this one comes from, it's a pretty generic name, so I think we can say it. This one comes from Tim. My name's Tim and I live in uh, an area of Sydney. I'm not going to, ah, fuck it. I live in the Strathfield area of Sydney. That's near me. We're neighbours. Uh, my question is more of a request. I'm an engineer working in the energy industry and in my spare time I build an educational tool to help people understand the transition going on in the industry, open bracket, especially the underlying economics, close bracket. The tool is online at www.gratchenergy.com. If you guys could have a look at it and briefly comment, that would be really cool. If you do it on the spot during the podcast, the best move would be to do the tutorial and comment on that. Also, massive thanks for the pod and donating the proceeds to a good cause. Well, thank you, Tim. Well, um, say hello to me if you if you see me because I'm just next door in in well, Concord Burwood. Um, I've opened up the uh, Gratch page. Build your own electricity grid. Select a state for your fleet. This is cool. All right. Launch fleet builder. All righty. So Jordan, I'm in the um. I'm on the website. I'm on Tim's website. Your fleet does not have any generators or storage yet. Oh, this reminds me of one of those like, uh, what are they called? I think just strategy games or whatever, where you can, you know, you can 
either have towers or you can have uh, other forms of <laughs> defense or artillery and weaponry, and you have to sort of strategically, based on the budget you have, strategically choose uh, how you're going to build your defenses and, and your army and, and, and try to gain more uh, resources. They're the best um, kind of game. I love those. Mm-hmm. All right, choose a generator fuel type. So you can either choose solar PV, onshore wind. And by the way, everyone, go on to this. It's Gratch Energy, www.gratchenergy.com. That is G-R-A-T-C-H, energy.com. All right, choose a generator fuel type. We've got either solar, onshore wind, open cycle gas turbine, combined cycle gas turbine, reciprocating engine, supercritical black coal, supercritical brown coal. Fuck, I don't know what the what's the difference between black and brown coal. I can't remember either. Brown coal's the dirty one. Well, they're both dirty, but brown's much dirtier. Must be cheaper. Uh, racist? <laughs> cheaper and dirtier. <laughs> brown. Cheap and um, fuck. Not as cool. Nuclear yeah. pressurized water reactor, nuclear small modular reactor. Well, Jordan's definitely not going to choose nuclear. I'm not picking that. Well, I'm going to choose the nuclear one just to see what happens, to see if we create <laughs> another Fukushima. Yeah, give um, me let's go with the pressurized. Uh, what's a small modular reactor? Let's go with that one. Mm, choose the generator rating. Oh, well, fuck me. I don't know what the fuck. A <laughs> hundred? <laughs> I don't even know. All right, your New South Wales fleet. Nuclear small modular reactor, 100 megawatt hours. I have no idea if that's a good, uh, if that's a, you know, peak demand, 13,000 megawatt hours, dispatchable variables. to. Oh, I've got, a, I've got a lot to learn if this is the tutorial. I've got no idea what's, what's happening here. Are you, are you on the tutorial, Jordan? I'm not on the tutorial. I was just going to listen to yours. Do you want me to be on it? <laughs> yeah, go have a look. I'll have a look. Have you still All got right. it open? Give, give me the name again. Nah, I forgot it. What is it? Gratch Energy. G-R-A-T-C-H. Energy.com. Yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. Yeah. All right. About this graph. This graph shows your generator fleet capacity by class. Class is simply a way of categorizing the ways different generators behave. You can hover over each of your classes to learn more about them. Peak demand is also shown here. It represents the worst case scenario over the course of the whole year where demand is at its highest. Offer the most reliable, cost-effective way to manage peak demand is to size your dispatchable generators equal to peak. Well, I've got this one nuclear generator and it's not... Um... Oh, I can add more. Okay. Where do I go? Is this the tutorial? Fuck, I'm such a boomer. Let me start again. Just says build your own. Ah, oh, learn how Gratch works here. Okay, see, I didn't do the tutorial. Generation profiles of intermittent generators are based on actual generation data. All cost is taken. Oh, this is really cool. Dude, Tim, well done. This is sick. And we've got the electricity tutorial. Yeah, probably should have done that first. <laughs> Okay, here is that pool. Your task as the pool owner is to make sure the pool is always filled to the standard level. Trust me when I say. Oh, it's a bit of a game. 
the coal pump has been a, a, a staple of keeping our water levels topped up for many years. It costs a lot of money to buy and install, but does not cost much to run. It can slowly turn its speed up and down, but it has to be kept at a minimum of 40% speed. Yeah, sick. Have the gas pump. Alrighty. Got a coal pump and a gas pump here. Then we got the hydro pump. Fuck. This is a this is a energy intense pool. So the hydro pump comes with a big water tank. <laughs> Things started to change when a mysterious Mr. Renewables moved to town and claimed that he could sell, help supply water to the pool. Although the price he was asking for to do this was competitive, he insisted that he kept control of when water gets released from his house. He gave some very vague clues about when the pipelines would flow, the solar pipeline would consistently supply water during the day with reduced output on cloudy days. The wind pipeline was much more random, but with a base bias to supplying water at night. <laughs> Things became very heated after Uncle Rupert immediately <laughs> uh, got tired at, at Mr. Renewables telling the community was not to be trusted. <laughs> this is cute. I like this. Sometime later, Elon, an engineer from out of town, proposed that a partial situation for the town's pool worries could be some battery buckets. These work much the same as the hydro pump tanks, except on a much smaller scale. Aha, uh -huh. yeah, see, I know about those, those, those good old lithium batteries. But battery bu buckets are not really cost-effective. Ah, oh, Elon, you came up with PayPal. You can't come up with a good battery. How often is the water level kept at standard? People to demand very high system reliability from the pool. 99.998 to be precise. Congratulations for completing the tutorial. Yay. I hope you learned something. I did skim through that, to be fair. Um, keep in mind the tutorial was greatly simplified and I <laughs> skipped through it as Still well. Skipped Let's it. go back a little bit. Okay, so I got what he did. He started with this pool, then he started with the there's the coal, then you got your gas. Uh, so he's going through different modes of energy here. You got hydro, um, and then Mr. Renewables, solar and wind came along. Hmm. And then you've got the battery here. So it's a it's a very uh, handy little timeline of our energy sources. Tim, this is Although really clever. Is, is his name? Yeah, Tim? it is. It is. Tim, I'm yeah. really impressed that you did this. Was this for uni or something? Tim, he did. Tim, uh, I'm not going to say his last name because, uh, for whatever reason, people don't like to be exposed on this podcast. But <laughs> so it's a, it's a it's a it's a pretty Anglo uh, last name, and he's in Strathfield, so he'll he, 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 let's just say he'll stand out. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Or he's one of the from those one of those Chinese families that tried to fit in too much. No, Chinese families give their uh, kids, for, for whatever reason, they give them fucking English names from the 1700s. It's always like Edmund or like uh, the, yeah. the, the girls have names like, um, uh, fuck, I can't even know, but Helga or like Helena and just like older sort of names. Um, damn, I'm mind blanking here, but I went to school with a, a lot of them. <laughs> Now I can't even. It is true, isn't it? They give names that are just so out of date. Hey, <laughs> yeah. Neil, have you talked about? Do you know what you want to call your kids? 
No, I have not thought about that at all. Uh, have not thought about kids yet. I mean, I'm still, well, late 20s actually, so it's something to start. Uh, uh, I've always sort of on and off wondered whether I even want them. And that's Where are you with that? 20s. Yeah, I'll get them and I'll get them in a few years. Hey. AFP, going to come after the kids, Jordan. Uh, shouldn't have said shit, should I? More political liability. Make sure you don't yeah, give them your no. last name. Yeah, I'm sure that'll help. Can't I'm send like... them to a private school. Their kid, they'll they'll get bullied knowing that. Yeah, their true. Dad Where is do I you. send them? Uh, you know what? I, I think you're on the same Selective. wavelength as me. Well, you know, if they get in, but if not, Catholic. We're going to a Catholic school. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? Seems like a sort of reasonable middle ground, hey? Don't you reckon? Even though I'm, cle- Beats I'm and clearly not a Catholic. But um, it's just, uh, you know, with an ever-changing cultural landscape, may actually be at least oh, uh, consistent and uh, something that makes sense <laughs> being taught yes. Catholicism. Ironically enough, but um, <laughs> dude, there's a huge debate going on in America about you know critical race theory in schools, and I'm sure it'll happen here eventually. But yeah, anyway, don't want to end the podcast with something like that. But look, um, everyone, go to Gratch Energy www.gratchenergy.com. Don't just do gratchenergy.com. Uh, I tried that, didn't work. So go to www. And uh, shout out to Tim who's made a, a brilliant uh, website here. And in his spare time, he's built an educational tool here. So very smart man. Um, thank you, Tim. If you would like to send us a question or a website for us to visit, go to neilcohacker.com slash podcasts. And uh, I think we will wrap what will likely be a two-part podcast series up here. Uh Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. That was a that was a really great discussion. I enjoyed that. Um, Jordan, mm. thank you. No Keep worries. up the good thank fight. You. Thank you. Everyone else, uh, subscribe to this. This will probably be the first podcast that are coming out on my main channel for a while. So subscribe if you haven't already, and um, stay tuned. I got a lot of uh, YouTube content coming. Thanks, guys. Thanks heaps, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. And actually, you know what? A final plug. Make sure you get that CBD oil, crushorganics.com. Use the code Neil for 40% off. Hashtag influencer. Crush. <laughs> <spelled with a cat. laughs> All right. <laughs> See you, guys.